0: Hello everyone. Welcome to a new episode of One Vision. Joining us once again today is our very good friend, Gela Boscovich, regional director and head of Europe at Financial Data and Technology Association, as well as we shouldn't have to introduce, but just reiterate the founder and global advisor for Femtech Global and a member of several boards, advisory groups across the industry. And if you do not know Gela, go ahead and, 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 and familiarize yourself before you come back to the show. But anyway, welcome, Gella.
1: (laughs) That's an intro and also a heavy obligation on the audience. Don't worry, you don't need to Google. It's fine. You'll get a flavor. It's
0: enough. (laughs) You don't need a whole meal. No, no, no. That's what we should do. This is the prerequisite of listening into this episode. Go do your homework before you come back. Anyway, (laughs) (laughs) so... You were our very first interview as part of a new series we did. Oh, good God. That was a while ago called we We did a round for the other 50, which was dedicated to showcasing amazing women in FinTech um, who are making a difference, not only in their fields, but also helping other women succeed because we are all about the ecosystem, the village or the tribe. That was a while ago, before COVID. Um, That was before Brexit, before Black Lives Matter, before the,
1: I don't know what else is going on in here. How have you been? What's going on with you? What's the latest? Oh, good grief. So um, since the apocalypse has arrived, it's been an interesting couple of years, I guess a year and a half. Um, I shifted my focus onto open banking regulation full time, which has been fantastic. That's part of the work with the Financial Data and Technology Association, or FDATA uh, as, we, as we acronym it. Um, it's been an interesting sort of landscape change in terms of rolling out uh, PSD2, of the consumer data right being adopted in different parts of the globe, seeing some progress finally being made in the States. Um, As far as I'm concerned, it's just been sort of a, a deep immersion into regulation and policy and making sure that there's an actual level playing field for innovation and competition. And really actually seeing some of the challenges that FinTechs face in terms of being able to connect and access data. Um, and why it really is necessary to sort of mandate that consumers have an option of, of choosing who their financial service provider is. So it really hit home for me. I mean, I believed in the principle beforehand, but actually seeing some of the day-to-day challenges that these small businesses who are really trying to transform the financial lives of people are face from a legal and, and policy perspective was, was really eye-opening. And it's been an amazing opportunity to fight for the rights of those firms that are an alternative to the big incumbents and i'm really really pleased that i'm still kind of on the side of the underdog Um, i guess maybe that's the natural the natural fit for me is you know fight for those that that really are trying to change the world but don't necessarily have the capital the resource or the bandwidth to do so for themselves so it's been an exciting and interesting year from that perspective Other than that, I think I'm in the same boat as everybody else with this whole global pandemic and the way life has changed. It's just been a lot of really um, challenging, uncomfortable, eye-opening. And yet, I think for the, you know, there are a lot of positives that come out of it as well. Some of the the challenges that I've had um, are similar to everyone else. And I think that we've all had an interesting last 18 months irrespective of where we are and who we're with or who we're not with. Um, At the same time, I think it's been a really amazing opportunity to stay in one place for so long and to actually relax into a daily schedule, which I hadn't had before for the last 10, 15 years. So, you know, waking up in my own bed for the last 18 months has been an absolute bliss compared to waking up in plane and train stations and weird hotels on weird corners of the earth um, and not knowing quite what day it is. And jet lag has not been a thing in my life, which... I know you two are <laughs> entirely familiar with, but I did not miss the jet lag, that's for sure.
2: I don't know. I, I could probably go for some jet lag right now, at least if it ended up in a beach or something like that. Uh, so, I, Well, we could just talk about that for like a half an hour, I know, but people wanna know more about F Data and what you're doing. Uh, the last time we talked to you, I just actually started to make the transition and you had just started. So it's been sort of this weird pandemic you know, experience uh, working with that team. And so, so getting back to it, though, the mission of FDATA, FDATA, of course, again, Financial Data and Technology Association, the mission is to open up the worldwide financial sector to allow every customer to leverage the benefits of financial data and technology to ensure that financial services are delivered in a fair, ethical, compliant, and robustly competitive landscape. So the question of all that, are incumbents really on board with open banking standards across Europe? And what about the rest of the world? I mean, what is going on with open banking?
1: Yeah, so this is, let's just be honest about open banking. It's a competition mandate, and it had to be mandated because the incumbents are not open to this. In fact, I think uh, I was I was reading um, uh, an article earlier today on Mother Jones uh, that noted a quote from Jamie Diamond about um, big incumbents should be shared skitless or, or scared shitless about the uh, Biden um, order the executive order on, on uh, Dodd Dodd Frank section 1033, opening up um, financial services, like properly opening up and creating open finance in the U S. And I think Diamond, diamond's right. There have been a couple of banks in Europe, especially in the UK who have actually embraced open banking and decided that they would look at it as an opportunity to revamp their business model, stand up some new um, lines of business that would cannibalize their existing uh, business lines and would actually act as a competitive, um, third-party provider, they would actually get a license as a TPP and have a proper API strategy and be able to consume their own APIs internally and actually look at this not as a compliance exercise, but a business revamping exercise. And those institutions not only produce an incredibly well-performing and uh, conformant API, but they've actually managed to, you know, reduce their time to produce new services, they've reduced their uh, technology lifecycle. Um, from months to days, sometimes hours, you know, they've been able to actually really take advantage of this. And there are those who decided to drag their heels and obfuscate and frustrate and postpone and delay. And they've not managed to actually find the uptick in revenue, nor are they able to find that their market share has increased or that they have a a better and more, um, a better improved customer service rating and that their customers are satisfied. So it's been interesting because there's been a disparate response to it. Um, Again, it's mandated because the banks didn't wanna play in the first place. So, I don't think that they're really on board, and I, I don't think that they will be for a while yet. The writing is on the wall in terms of open finance and a digital, like a digital financial strategy, which is what the EU is aiming for. Open finance is what the UK is formally calling it. And there are other jurisdictions around the globe that have followed suit to PSD2, but have actually gone a little bit further. And even in the US, open banking existed without the mandate, but it didn't exist in the context of the consumer had the choice. And it was the consumer's decision whether or not to unleash and unfurl the power of their data. It was actually those who held the data that, were, that had that, that chokehold on it. And we're seeing in Australia with open banking and the consumer data right CDR, super robust. It goes beyond uh, both GDPR and PSD2 in terms of the consumer right. Uh, to own their data and to move their data. And they're ticking along and they only have four big banks that are actually mandated to do this. And it's still a struggle because those banks are also not necessarily playing ball in the most enthusiastic way. But we're seeing a number of different movements across the board. You know, In Africa, the Nigerian uh, market is really moving forward. They're very, very advanced and they're ticking on to a a proper structure of open finance. We're seeing that open banking is taking hold in the GCC and the Middle East, and looking at um, you know some of those structures that are being put in place by the Dubai authorities in and Bahrain and, and Saudi uh, in particular, and, and you know looking at what the ADGM is also doing. And we're seeing that in LATAM with the fintech law in Mexico from a few years ago, but they're finally starting to move on that. And in Brazil, open banking is really sort of an open finance approach, and they're also solidifying the consumer data, right? Same for Canada. I mean. The Canadians call their open finance, open banking legislation, consumer-directed finance, because it is consumer-directed finance. It's based on a consumer data right, and for the very first time, we saw just a couple of weeks ago that the U.S. is now starting to look at enshrining what should have been enshrined, you know, 13 years ago, 14 years ago, with the 2008 crisis and the Dodd-Frank legislation. That is actually the consumer who owns their data. They are the ones who should be able to direct their data to any finance, any regulated. Uh, and licensed uh, provider of their choice to execute those products and services that oversee their financial lives. And we're also starting to see this in the context of bigger things. We're talking about open data economies and open banking has led the way for the open data economy to actually exist. But it comes down to the basic thing of a consumer data right. And of course, corporations who have been the ones to collect, hold, hold, and vault that data are going to be, resistance, be resistant precisely because a lot of their business models are built on the ownership of the data, they are not the owners of it, and that partic- that that fundamentally changes the way they can leverage it, use it, and extract value from it if that initial data set is being moved by law to another provider, they don't have access to it, so it starts, it shifts the dynamic. So no, any incumbent wouldn't necessarily be enthusiastic about it, but any incumbent that knows that they need a sustainable business model realizes they actually have to start playing the game and they have to actually be their own competition and they have to act like a a FinTech and they have to actually be a FinTech and licensed as a third party provider in order to really take advantage of what this data-driven model will enable for their future market sustainability, growth and share.
2: So so let's let's give into that a little bit, though, in terms of what F data does within the space, what they want to do, because when when you look at, you know, a market like the U.S., lots of challenges to like, kind of like even get back to speed with PSD 2 and what other, you know, sort of geographies are doing. But then you have state level stuff like the CCPA in California, the California mm-hmm. Consumer Protection Act, you have Virginia with their own Privacy Act. And it's not just about financial data to what you alluded to. So does does F Data sort of take a stance on any type of personal private data and how that relates to financial data as well? What's what's the the thinking there?
1: Absolutely, we are completely in support of a consumer data right, and we feel that that has to be one of that is the most important enshrined artifact in law, and it's not just financial data; it is any personal private data that you that you have that you create that you are the owner of that data um and that you should be able to direct it to a service provider uh, of your choice irrespective of what the industry or market is so for example there's a smart data initiative in the uk that is uh, looking at the intersection of finance and communication uh, utilities and uh and government and that's just the start and it's how i direct my data to find the most maximize the economic value of some of those services from my service providers in electric and gas and water and utilities and and communications and telco to even looking at um, health options and and i think if this is particularly in the us that intersection of telco data and health data and insurance data and financial data um, being able to select my service provider that allows me to leverage that data in a way that discounts the cost of that service, but also enhances the particular value being provided and having my telco and my transportation data inform my insurance company of the type of coverage I may need um, or the risk that I am in terms of health and and, or, or transportation and driving, that they should be able to actually offer me a better value and appropriate risk pricing for insurance products that keep me safe and healthy. And that if I can let them see that information if i choose to give that to them that they should be able to offer more innovative product and service that actually fits the need fits the timing of it and the duration for which i have that need and we don't do that we don't actually leverage the intersection of all of this sort of interesting information and data that we have because it's caught up in in silos within different industries but also we don't have a right to it and as consumers we've sort of given it over to the 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 corporate level you know the 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 firm level and it's our right to unlock it enough data we actually have been behind the uh, cdr consultations we've submitted a lot of um, my counterpart jamie leach she's down in uh, sydney is working diligently and is participating in that and was um, was involved in that from the, from the get go in getting the consumer data right shaped and uh, the feedback and the insight from industry, you know, into that. Uh, same with my counterpart in the states. His name is Steve Bombs. He's the head of North America F Data, and he's I mean he's been encouraging and pushing uh, and specifically working with um, Senator Gillibrand around the uh, the the formal federal level consumer data right um, that sort of piggybacks on the work from um, the, the CCPA and the various state level and um, initiatives are going on around data privacy and data rights and we're really thrilled to, to see Biden having uh, written that executive order it's a big a big deal and F data has been lobbying actively for years on that particular point. Um, same same goes for the technical standards that deliver these sort of services, at least in the market, in um, the financial services market. Uh, looking at FAPI standards or um, OAuth standards, and you know, looking at interoperability and some global technical standards on on the financial grade APIs that should be put in place in order to facilitate clean, safe, secure, and uh, and efficient data transmission and exchange across those different lines. So FDATA does work at the policy level. It's, it's based on different markets and the particular cultural and uh, specific needs of that market. But the foundational piece for us is the consumer data right. And everything that is built in open banking and open finance needs to stem from that. And we're an ad, we're, we're a firm believer in that. All of the firms that are members of FDATA uh ulcer oriented that way and it's one of the critical things that we think every market needs is that enshrined consumer data right in order for open banking to actually be implemented or delivered to any degree of success
0: wow well, i like that although the um other side of me thinks that at least for for here is gonna take us a while to get to anything I don't know,
1: so. well, the CFPB is really um, being empowered to, to take this on and encouraged to do it at speed. I mean, the fact of the matter is it exists already in law, right, it, it, it's a section 1033 of the Dodd-Frank Act um, alludes to a consumer data right. It doesn't say it explicitly, but it can alludes to this opening of competition and that the consumer should be able to direct their, you know, choose their service provider, that competition requires a plethora of choice and that is the consumer's choice. And if you kind of unpick that, it goes a little bit further in in alluding to it being around the data. So you're gonna have to have something spelled out clearly. And I think at the federal level, it would be be absolutely critical. I think CCPA is an amazing example of where that can start. And the fact that it actually passed is really quite incredible, right? It passed in the States. It took away the corporate's quote unquote, ownership of data and actually put it back in the individual consumer and small businesses hand. And I think that's that that sets precedent. So probably sooner rather than later. I don't think it'll take it as long as one might imagine, given the complexity of the U.S. landscape. But it's already there. It's in. It's in. It's it's already there. It's now butting up against some of the tech giants that have that um, application layer data that you know you consider yours, like Facebook and Google and Amazon. Um, those are the ones that you're going to have to pull it from. I think the banks will understand they have to comply with this, especially if it goes uh, forward and it's enshrined in law. But I think it'll be the, the application layer stuff that, that's going to be even harder to pull it from. So it's more big tech questions that I have than I have from the institutions that are regulated in a really, really scrutinized way. So there's a different level of regulatory scrutiny over big tech than there is over um, the financial services firms. Mm-hmm. So it'll be a lot easier to enforce in finance, and it will be in, in the rest of big tech.
0: Yep. Who, um, in, in a way, they probably know everything about us and know more about us than we know about ourselves. Um, and, and there was an interesting point you brought up because recently there are talks about Google getting more into the health space and Mm. then the question becomes you know what kind of data would they have access to how much would they know about us and then the next question inevitably is how would we even have control over what they'll get about us and what they do with that data so it it's it's you're you're absolutely correct it is a big tech question and
1: i mean how does it stand scary well how do you get them to comply with hipaa right Right. That's like that's the bigger question. So Mm -hmm. where are the lines that need to be drawn that frame out where where certain actors can play and the rules that apply to those actors? And I think this will this this again, this is why the consumer data right is so critically important because mobility, portability, and right to be forgotten need to apply to the big tech firms as well. And how do you move your data? If you've got a monopoly on the, the big tech provider, or the the big tech, tech provider is the monopoly, and they have insight and can and can control that um, that pricing, right? That they have, like, there's no collusion needed with another firm. They they own the pricing. They can pick their own pricing, and they can pick their own terms and conditions, and they can create a number of hurdles for. The desirable market that they want to serve, and I mean that's a question of inclusion and universal service. Mm-hmm. so there are a lot of principles around you know just basic human dignity that come into play when we're talking about who has access to that sort of information and that who holds the data and who's the the custodian of that and how they offer services and discriminate across the board. It's a much more complex and bigger question than than I think you know most people think it's it's yeah, it oof. <laughs> <I> was,
0: <yeah. laughs> Oof is a good it, Oof is a good word for it because they essentially like you said control the market and not only that they control who comes to play they control the entire ecosystem and innovation and and who else can have access to the key to the kingdom and I think that is the scary part is you know they've gotten to a point where how do you start peeling back the layers right and if you look at for example what China is doing with the Alibaba and the Tencent DD of the world, is that a way to go, um, basically stop them until they comply? Um, one would say that that is not the most democratic way of handling it. But there, there's also a line to be drawn that, you know, how big would you let a particular conglomerate grow until it is not to the best interest of consumers?
1: I think, and I think that's the, that's the existential question, right? So if we're looking at open versus closed societies and open versus closed markets, um, you know, China closed, even with Tencent and Alibaba closed, right? Um, so you comply because these are the rules that we create or you don't play. And open is letting the market to a certain extent find some of its own measures, and, you know, there are certain principles that are put in place from consumer protection to a duty of care to um, uh, fair, and fair treatment of all and fair business practices, et cetera. And at the same time, you've got regulatory scrutiny. So here's the general framework. Um, it's open. We're transparent about it. And then there are certain things that we want industry to find their own solution to. So there's the collaborative ecosystem approach and finding that middle path. Neither is—I mean—they both have their 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 pros and cons, right? Um, and both take time and both take resources to enforce and to to figure out. I don't know which is best. I know which one I prefer, but it's probably because I'm more familiar with it and comfortable with it, you know, just from an open perspective. And I think when we're talking about this, because it's not um, it's not a regulatory thing so much as it's a competition thing. It's been framed out. Open banking is framed out as a competition remedy. And the U.S. is now framing it as a comp, this is the first time open banking has been framed from a competition remedy point of view as well under the under the Biden order. So there's something about that that allows the market to find its own equilibrium, that they're new entrants to the market. They have to bring innovation. Um, otherwise, it's just the same old, same old. So how do you attract market share? It's with something new and different. Um, there's a competition amongst firms to deliver the most value at the most efficient uh efficient methodology and there's continuous pressure to improve right there's there's sort of a preemptive move against stagnation so I think when it comes down to a data driven economy it's the same principles that have always applied to any sort of material um economy and 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 uh it, it, it is still about is the is the playing field level does everyone have most of those obstacles removed so the entry and exit to the markets fairly you know fairly simple um, not too capital heavy not a, an over taxed you know overly taxed, uh, it's not overly taxed in terms of capital requirements um, and I'm not talking from a systemic risk point of view but just you know from entering the market with a proposition and does the consumer actually find value in it? Because the consumer adoption, um, you know, indicates the value. I think what's interesting is that there's such an apathy amongst consumers and risk aversion when it comes to money to move to a new provider. That of course that takes time. But when you're signaling to the market that these firms are accredited, they are regulated, that they're licensed, that they're held to the same strict standards as a traditional institution, you know that that. Signals some sort of confidence, and the trust exercise takes a little bit longer um, to encourage movement and consumer adoption. But it does actually happen, and when people start to see the value, it you know it really ticks up very quickly. And when people can rely on the network, the technology network to be reliable and can, and, and accessible um, anytime, any place, anywhere, then absolutely it it improves. You know the the consumer adoption, and that signals to the market that the competition is actually it actually exists. It's a real thing at this point, but it needs some encouragement. It needs some you know some nurturing and some fostering to get there. Um, but you know, coming back to it, I guess the whole point is F data is all about ensuring that the consumer has the right to choose their provider, and that that provider is a licensed and regulated and accredited provider. So it's done in a way that is fair. It's it's competitive. It promotes innovation, and it ensures that there are positive consumer outcomes. But most of all, it's about ensuring that there's a maximization of the economic value of that money. We're focused only on open banking and open finance. And for the foreseeable future, considering how long it's taken for open finance, well, for open banking to become a reality, we'll be around doing the same thing um, for a number of years more until we actually get a full-fledged data economy. And at, at that point, we'll see what happens. But for right now, that's the fight we're fighting.
2: Well, and, and I, would, I would love to see, you know, things like PSD3 when it comes out and the equivalent across, you know, different markets and the iteration of CCPA across a federal level here in the States actually mean more competition and mean more control and mean more, you know, sort of power to the consumer. Because the challenge is just like when, when PSD2 and other um, privacy regulations have hit Europe for someone coming in and hitting websites and seeing all these different notifications, depending on where you're coming in from and everything else. With California's rollout, you started to see all these messages very similar to what had happened in Europe for several years. And the consumer still to say, oh, I want to not allow that access to that data. And I want to be able to move my data from this provider to another provider. Well, between social networks and between search sites like Google and now thinking about banking even though consumers have access to how their data is being used and it's more transparent, the challenge, just like it is in Europe, is still, do people want to bother with all that? Are they just blasting through terms and conditions, you know, mm-hmm. th- that's, that's I think, th- the the not ease of use in terms of data and privacy that is still going to be a problem. And there's going to be plenty of places that these lobbying groups push back on behalf of these companies to, like, say, no. but this is what consumers are doing they don't want to have access to this so i'm hoping i'm hoping in the next decade we see an awful lot of not just shifting the deck chairs between an incumbent and a fast scaling data driven startup but we're actually going to move into new territory um before we kind of get off the topic of f data into something else really quick here uh, mm-hmm. how can people learn more about what you're doing in f data and how could they get involved
1: well it's pretty straightforward the website is f data f d a t a dot global um, and you can dig through the various regions to find out some of the activities that we're involved in, the specifics, the responses to consultation and call for input and some of our position papers um, from Australia, South America, North America, um, Europe and India. And you know, that's live again, websites fdata.global. Um, but Brad, I think we're starting to see the harbinger of that with some of the uh, the kerfuffle between Facebook and Apple on the privacy, um, the privacy parameters that uh, Apple now has on its operating system and tracking of websites. So I think uh, the general public is getting more familiar with some of these um, data questions and privacy questions. So I think it's a shorter or, or quicker learning curve. I'm hoping, which also will accelerate um, how people start to to really think about uh, about their privacy and who has access to that data. But I think again, big tech is kind of an interesting place to look for an answer. But I think that Facebook, Apple, um, you know, quagmire is a uh, is is, in, is starting to raise awareness across the board, and I think consumers will be more quick to pay attention to that than they would some of the terms and conditions, but at least they're starting to, to get a bit more of an education around privacy and, and, you know, how their data is being used.
0: And then there is hope. Um, I want to ask you something on, on a slightly different topic. And that was actually the first time I met you quite a few years back then um, around advocating for women. I'm banking mm-hmm. and tech, Um, as you founded Tech Global as part of all of that. How do you feel about the state of things, women in this industry? I know I certainly do have my very loud opinion on it. What do you think we can do collectively, not just women supporting women, but men supporting women? What can we do to support the ecosystem better?
1: I the pandemic has really kicked women in the teeth and so it's worse than it was you know a couple of years ago um it was worse than when we started fetching about this on a routine basis and talking about it and pushing for awareness and allyship um i have to admit i'm a bit depressed about it but i think there's some interesting signals coming from different places for example the uk financial conduct authority has a consultation out and is promoting diversity and inclusion and specifically diversity and inclusion at financial institutions from a board perspective and hiring and makeup you know the composition of, of the institution and their directorships which i find absolutely fascinating that a regulator is saying hey we see that it actually reduces risk when we have a more diverse board composition that it actually produces better consumer outcomes when the firm reflects the market that it serves the composition of the market it serves and that this is really critical so it's not just the fact that they did a tech sprint earlier this year that was focused on women's uh, economic empowerment the fca did that in conjunction with uh, the cfpb actually in, in the states um, it's that they're now looking at putting in place requirements for financial firms to follow. And they're actually considering what that looks like from a policy perspective, not just a, hey, it's a really good business practice or hey, it's a nice idea, but we want we want to push towards an equity stake for people in this. And we want to see that reflected in the decision makers at that firm because it actually has an impact on the risk profile of that institution and therefore the systemic risk of the entire financial system. That's fascinating to me. And I think that the zeitgeist has hit just now where it's becoming a legal question, not just a one campus shouting about the fact that things are crap and they wanna improve them. Or that people are hip to the fact that there's been systemic racism since, you know, societies were created and crafted and, you know, penned into independence, that the moment of the hand that feeds you is the hand that represses you. And we're no longer going to take that hand. We'll find our own way. Or we're calling for equity and reparations. I think Black Lives Matters was absolutely phenomenal last year. And the... The collective zeitgeist sort of spoke to the fact that privilege and power needs to be called into question and that there are members of society who are fundamentally discriminated against and that those members of society, we've, you know, they may look like some of us, but that we can find them in all sorts of different camps. From those who are physically disabled or who have uh, um, cognitive disabilities to you know race, ethnicity, gender, gender orientation, you know some of those are also invisible, and those are things that you know we we've sort of been made aware of I think over the last um, last year in particular, that has been really, really apparent. It's been obvious you can't miss it so policymakers and lawmakers are now sort of picking this up and trying to reframe some of that playing field right um picking up the the obvious answers to making to de-risking things to making things more stable to making things uh more equal not just equal but that equity actually is involved that there's there's an absolute equity in it that all lives have a value that should be able to contribute to the, to the social structure and the community around them. And for us to exclude them or to ignore them or to diminish them is morally wrong. And we used to talk a lot about you know, women and diversity in the industry as, a, as an emotional and moral sort of thing or sort of a business opportunity, I should say, that we talked about, you know, what the business opportunity is, the business case for diversity is. And, you know, why you should have a team of product designers that reflect the market. You should have women and men. You should have it be multi-ethnic and multiracial, and they should have different socioeconomic backgrounds because they bring the perspective of that particular market segment to bear. And so you could actually think holistically around the problem, having all of the important inputs and all of the 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 perspectives at the table. And that's a great thing. It's a business case makes sense, but maybe we shouldn't be talking about business and maybe we should be talking about morality. What is absolutely right and wrong? And what's right is that everyone has an opportunity to be included in the financial system and have access to fair finance and fair credit. That it shouldn't be impossible for them to get an ID in order to prove that they exist. I mean, my God, they have a heartbeat, they exist. What are are the hurdles we have to get across? Right? So why should we have to clear more than that in order for someone to have an opportunity to open up a bank account? Why should someone be priced differently based on their skin or their neighborhood or their, you know, it makes no sense. It should be based on their behaviors and them as an individual. And we've seen time after time, study after study, that it has nothing to do with race or zip code or education level that people are able to pay back or you know, are reliable for paying back on credit. That it's about the individual behavior, it's not about what their surface level makeup looks like. So why are we talking about all of this business case bullshit when it's actually right and wrong? And I guess back to the original question is, how do I feel about it? I feel angry, I'm still angry about it, but I think that we've moved the conversation from equality to equity is actually a positive sign. And there's a positive sign that there are certain there's certain lawmakers out there who are really, really looking at this and actually making it a point of interest and putting it in, into code, putting it into, into the way businesses should be set up and run and how businesses should actually be inclusive and represent the diverse nature of the markets they're intended to serve. I go back to that point time and time again. Why in the hell would I be interested in someone that doesn't, you know, that doesn't reflect my own community? or a firm that doesn't take into consideration my entire social circle and how they would serve every single member of that. It's the same thing as if I would ask them to discriminate against my own family based on birth order. It's bullshit. And I think that we need to talk about it in terms of morality and what's what's owed. And we can't forget that, I don't know, I wish we could do blind recruiting or blind, you know, review of CVs, sort of that principle for everything that we do, that we take it on the individual and the content of their character rather than the outside packaging. And I don't know where I just went off piste with this entire answer, Theo, but...
0: I think it's perfect because um, you said what needs to be said, what probably a lot of people think, but can't quite put it in in such an articulate way that you do, and that's what we admire you for all the time. I, I do agree with you that I like the progress around equity, right, instead of DNI is now diversity, equity, inclusion. And I have recently started seeing um, DEI belonging. So as diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging It's the sense of belonging to your point, if you're a human being, right, you you are a person, you have a heartbeat, you have a person, you are already a person, why do you need to prove more that you actually belong to a particular community or
1: society? Um, I like that. I like that belonging bit. Yeah, yeah, I do like that. Yeah, it's interesting. I had a conversation the other day with Drew Graham. Uh, And who doesn't love Drew? Um, And he was talking about this notion of, it was about community, about orienting um, services around a particular community or an affinity. And an affinity and community and tribe is something that we self-identify with, like we choose into this, right? And what if we could provide services based on affinities and tribe and community? What would that look like? And how would that change the nature of the products that we structure and how we service and how we talk about it and communicate it. And I love that idea because it does it goes directly to the heart of belonging.
0: Mm-hmm, absolutely. And, and that that's one of the, um, the signs, the glimmer of hope however faint that is, um, with some of the newer crops of startups, right? You look, at, you look at cheese, you look at daylights, you look at all of those days centered around a community, the needs of the community, not just financial services, but, but beyond that, right? What does that group of people need? What draws them together? What are we not doing right for them? How can we fill it? So yeah. there is hope, but hope is too slow. I am not happy with the fact that we lost over 30 something years of progress. year, I'm not happy with the fact that the gender economic gap is going to take a few generations to close. I won't see it. My kids won't see it. Their kids will not see it. If we have not burned the planet down by then, perhaps another four generations or five will see it. We need to do better. Um, But there is hope Cling on to that little bit of hope. But It's always a pleasure to have you, Gela. Thank you so much for joining us again. We do miss you dearly, and Uh, hopefully we will be able to see you soon. And for the rest of you, thank you for for me rant, Theo, thanks for moving round. That is not rant; is actually wisdom. Words of wisdom that we cannot get anywhere else from social media, since we don't see you anymore. But this is this is this is great. This is exactly how we we thought any conversation with you would be. So thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. And for the rest of you, thank you for joining us for another episode of One Vision. We'll talk to you all next week.